So tonight, continuing on with the um, requisites for enlightenment, these are the ten qualities, uh, the qualities of generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, uh, resolve, loving-kindness, and equanimity. These qualities are qualities that uh, the Buddha, in his journey, brought to full fruit. And these qualities were qualities that uh, enabled him to realize the end of suffering, and they become the manifestation of wisdom, of the awakened mind. And these are all qualities that are important for each and every one of us in our journey of awakening. In previous evenings, I've done a talk on generosity, virtue, and I am at this time going to skip over renunciation and wisdom, not because they're not important, but because Joseph, in his last two talks, has really spoken uh, very immediately about renunciation and wisdom. So I'll pick these talks up again in the future. Um, but the, the renunciation and wisdom you know, are very central to uh, the teachings he's been giving on the Four Noble Truths and particularly the cessation of suffering, that we really find that this hits upon these. So tonight I'll move into energy or effort, which is really the quality that is needed for each of us to stay steady on this path, to you know, be able to um, walk step by step and not falter on the journey. You know, the, the energy or effort is needed to bring all of these ten requisites for enlightenment to fruition. Um, that without energy or effort, we just simply wouldn't bother. We really discover on this journey that it's really not a journey for the lazy or complacent. That there are many challenges along the way. And we need to be able to meet these challenges. Not all energy is a parami. The Buddha spoke about what he called right energy. Uh, in moments in life, we can have you know, an abundance of energy, whether it's in our daily lives and the activities we do, whether it's sitting here on retreat, you know, at times that there can be so much energy, it's uh, um, un- destabilizing that it can be hard to sit with. Uh, in our lives, we find that you know we can do many great endeavors where uh, you know we may be very physically active, um, triathlons, or maybe we you know. Uh, travel the world at large and seem to do this with great zest and zeal. But this is not what the Buddha was talking about. He's talking about the energy that gets directed towards liberation and is guided by right view and right intention. The aspects of right view and right intention are very important because this is what takes energy from being very painful, what it can be when we don't know what to do with it and have abundance of it, or when we're suffering because we have a lack of it. But it's bringing in the wisdom element to work with this quality. The wisdom element means with right view that it's a view that is in alignment with truth. In our lives, you know, so often what we do, what we say, is all based in misperception, not seeing clearly. But with right view, there is this capacity to look, to discern what's wholesome, what's helpful, on one level, right view is supported by the understanding of karma, the understanding of cause and effect, being able to discern what is skillful, what's unskillful, 
doing so by looking into our experience deeply. And right view is also supported by the realization of the Four Noble Truths that Joseph's been speaking of, that we, in our own experience, look into the cause of suffering, this craving, this thirst, and we come to realize the end of suffering. Right intention is intention that is um, thoughts of renunciation, you know, thoughts of relinquishment, letting go, thoughts of benevolence, non-ill will. This can include generosity, loving kindness, and also thoughts of non-harming, whether it's to ourselves, others, or to both. This means, with working with this quality of energy, we bring in the wisdom factor to guide us towards that which is useful, helpful, that which brings about the great qualities in the mind, loving-kindness, compassion, that which helps to bring about the great stability of equanimity, the mind that is not grasping. In our practice, we often find ourselves flip-flopping between having a lot of energy and having too little. You know, times where there's an abundance, um, where it can be hard to sit, where there is, um, you know, a jumpiness in the mind, and times when we just can't come out of the fog. You know, it's so dense, it's so thick, and we don't care. You know, complacency sets in. Effort or energy, or right effort, as the Buddha spoke about it, starts to feel like a great mystery and, you know, something very elusive. You know, in one moment, something might really help to arouse some energy, and then in the next moment, it has no effect, and we're once again left kind of, you know, flopping about sense of... So tonight I wanted to speak about something that I found very helpful in my own practice, and you know, comes straight from the Buddha, it, when he spoke about the four great endeavors of effort or energy. And you know, the, to me this is just really practical ways we can look at working with whatever level of energy or effort we have to keep us on the path to liberation, to keep us from falling into complacency, to keep us lo- you know, to help keep us from being lost. Um, <clears throat> The first of these four great endeavors is to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mind states. I'll just give you the four and then I'll go through each one. The second is to abandon already arisen, unwholesome mind states. And the third is to arouse wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. And the fourth is to maintain and, and strengthen wholesome states that have already arisen. These are often termed guarding, abandoning, developing, and maintaining. So speaking of the first, the preventing or guarding against the arising of unwholesome mind states. This we do through wise attention, mindfulness, paying 
careful attention to all that arises in our minds and having a continuity of mindfulness. This helps to bring a great stability to the mind. We find that with this preventing and guarding that we aren't falling into habit, which is, you know, the great force that we are working, working against or working to wake up out of on this journey of awakening. You know, that we, we just fall into a way of life that is so habituated. And that when we start to pay attention in our lives, this quality of mindfulness brings a great protection so that we are not simply thrown about by these habits, so that we're not at the mercy of these habits We also protect through wise friendship in our lives. This preventing can be a way of turning towards that which inspires us, that which is helpful, that which nourishes us. And wise friendship is friendship that leads us onward in our lives, that helps us to be able to have greater discernment. We also find that simplification can be a means of guarding or protecting against the unwholesome mind states. Know that if we keep putting ourselves in in the place of temptation, it becomes very wearing to the energy to be faced over and over and over again with temptation. No, on one retreat uh, over at the retreat center, I would often walk in the dining room. And I have a great love of coffee. And so sure enough, I'd be walking in the dining room. People would come in and make a cup of coffee. Every time a cup of coffee was made, desire was, you know, came full force. And then there was just the battleground with that desire. And then, you know, one day it just dawned on me, if I don't have the energy to wrestle with this force of desire, I can just go walk somewhere else. And, you know, in our lives, you know, if we have the best of everything around us, it's always going to be calling on our attention and doesn't give us the effort or energy to really apply ourselves to what is useful in our lives. We keep having to battle this tendency to squander or, you know, just go for that which seems pleasant. I was doing a retreat one time with, uh, it was actually with Sayada Upandita, but one of the uh, monks assisting him was Sayada Uvivekananda. And during that retreat, he said, almost on a daily basis to me, protect your mind. And, you know, it, so it was really like, wow, what's he pointing to here? And one of the things that I noticed from him saying this to me on a daily basis was that there can be a tendency as we practice to get very enchanted enthralled with when things are going very effortlessly, effort, effortlessly, <laughs> without effort, um, easily. Um, and, you know, we, we might be seeing new things, having moments of insight, and really get captivated by that. And, and then we get up, or, you know, may, maybe we're walking, and, you know, it's not limited to sitting, but we're moving about, and, you know, these fleeting judgments come in, these little aversive, 
crippets you know, of thought that we direct towards our neighbors, or you know, and they don't seem like much, and the tendency to gloss over. But you know, all of those have force. All of those can have an effect. And then what happens if we don't notice these little moments of agitation? Is that suddenly in one moment, somebody says something, does something, and there's just an explosion. You know, it really... Because the mind has, on some level, been unguarded, unprotected, and even momentarily dwelling in unwholesome mind states. Shanti Deva, who was a great Indian scholar, um, who was said to have a you know really beautiful combination of qualities that he had a very powerful intelligence, a keen appreciation of the suffering of the world, and a deep tenderness towards others and mortality. He said that um, we must guard our minds with the same care with which we would protect a broken arm if we were moving through a crowd. Now that we really need to take care. And it's so easy to think that these little moments are not important. But when we look at the consequences of desire, anger, we see that those unchecked moments can build into a huge momentum. And so there is this necessity to protect. And we do so by this continuity of mindfulness. Because then, if something unwholesome does arise in the mind, it is seen before it has a huge momentum, before it's such a powerful force that it's hard to let go of. If we see it in its its arising, there can be the abandoning. Which is the second great endeavor to abandon the already arisen unwholesome mind states. And, you know, despite our best efforts, these karmic fruits from the past ripen. They arise in our experience. But this is where we practice relinquishment, letting go, non-identification. You know, we can't stop them from arising, but we don't need to feed them. You know, we don't need to uh, fuel them. This is this is really an important place. You now, when when anger, aversion, frustration, rage arise in the mind, it's not that we need to go into guilt. You know, why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening. But this is where we can use the effort or energy to meet this experience. And the abandoning happens through wisdom, through clear seeing. This is arising due to causes and conditions. It's impermanent in its nature. It's impersonal in its nature. And seeing this, there's no reason to fuel it. It's not the truth of who we are. It's just causes and conditions. Abandoning. We do this through the wise attention. And sometimes these states persist. And this is where, if they persist, we investigate. Look more closely. What's happening here? Really letting the mind feel into the experience. 
for not separating, backing away from, distancing through disconnection, then we begin to discern these characteristics. We begin to be able to see that the conditioned nature of these experiences. We'll often find that we need great patience when these unwholesome mind states are persisting. That there'll be a moment where there's a sense of letting go and then identification happens again. And then letting go and identification. We keep staying steady in this application of energy. We keep investigating, letting the mind touch the experience, know the experience, because then abandoning happens naturally. So as we're investigating, to do so in a way where the mind is both relaxed receiving of this experience and knowing of it. This too will help the mind to stabilize. As we investigate, it can still happen that these unwholesome mind states persist further. And these are all suggestions from the Buddha that I'm sharing. His next suggestion is to replace unwholesome thoughts with wholesome thoughts. So, you know, we've, we've worked with mindfulness, trying to abandon, but, you know, the wisdom factor isn't strong enough. There's a stickiness. So, you know, we persist. Investigation, looking, discerning, touching the experience. And, and, you know, this identification still keeps coming in. So then he suggests, you know, if, like, like if it, that we can actually repla- replace whatever unwholesome thought is there with a wholesome thought. So this can be where, you know, anger, thoughts of anger are really prevalent. Doing some loving-kindness practice, metta, helping us to soften, open, accept the experience. If desire is strong and we keep thinking about what we want, need, think we need, uh, and the mind just keeps going to it, to reflect on impermanence, how whatever it is that this desire is so strong for is impermanent in its nature. That there's no lasting happiness to be found in it. We don't want to use these wholesome thoughts as band-aids. You know, it's not like in a moment of anger just try to plaster some metta on it. You know, that, that's not so skillful. But what these replacement of thoughts can do is help to direct the mind towards a deeper truth. You know, from being caught in desire to the truth of impermanence. We're not able to see the impermanence in, when we're caught in the desire, but the remembering of it helps to bring in that wisdom. In using this form of practice, it's really, you know, often we'll we'll need to call up some level of honesty because as good meditators, we often carry the thought that we should be able to be mindful of everything. And, you know, there's this great should in our practice. And we find that that's, you know, it's just not strong enough in our experience at times when the experience is so sticky. And so, you know, many of us have an idea that to do something like to replace an unwholesome thought with a wholesome thought, you know, is, you know, 
not skillful means we're no good. We're we're um, you know it's it's showing a sign of failure, and really it's showing wisdom. It's being able to say mindfulness is not strong enough right now. I need to rely upon something else. You know, to bring in another tool of practice in efforts to guard the mind, to protect the mind. And some of these states are really, really sticky. And so we might still find that this unwholesome state is persisting. And then the Buddha spoke about reflecting on the faults of the unwholesome. So in our experience, you know, if it's working with anger, the immediacy of it is that we can experience the poison of anger in our minds. To, you know, right there, feel what happens when anger is present, the agitation, how we suffer. You know, oftentimes we can feel very self-righteous in anger and, and be identified in a way that we don't clearly see. It's more like the honey tip of the anger. But when we start to feel anger in itself, that we can feel the great suffering. And if we don't in that moment experience it, or we can't see it, uh, we can reflect on how much suffering has come about through people acting out of anger. And that might just be in our own lives, to remember times when we acted out on anger, and relationships are broken in just a split second. Know that the effect can be so strong. It can sometimes take years to heal. We can reflect on the amount of wars that have been fought, that have been fueled by anger. And to just really get a sense of how powerful and destructive this state is when it's left unchecked. It becomes very humbling, you know, and that it, it was certainly through the scene of anger in my own mind that it, you know, really <laughs> brought up a lot of energy in that, wow, you know, I was quite awed by the, 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 the force of it that I felt. Actually, only even recently, you know, in, in relationship to world events, I had a moment where rage arose, such as I hadn't seen in a number of years. And, you know, in the, I just, you know, it was quite shocking to see. And then, you know, it was just the thought, wow, there's more work to do. You know, I need to really continue in my practice. And when we really get in touch with that force, it will bring about energy, commitment. And still, sometimes, these unwholesome states persist. And the Buddha as a last resort, talked about suppressing. Now really using the mind to push down that which is unwholesome. And for many of us, the pattern, the way we lived before we began meditation was often, and maybe still, (laughs) um, that of suppressing and so we don't. We know we don't want to do that. You know, it's like, no thanks. It, that too seems like uh, wrong, wrong way, wrong path. But I don't think that's what the Buddha was pointing to, because there's an element of wisdom that says, no, this is not okay. And knowing that there isn't this 
level of wisdom that can simply abandon, one recognizes that in this moment, this is not okay to indulge in this mind state. And, you know, it's, it is like a sword of wisdom that comes out and says, Enough! And so we use a wholesome force in the mind. And whether we like it or not, our habits have such momentum that at times we really have to pull up a huge amount of energy. We're breaking a trance. We're breaking momentum. The momentum of the status quo, you know, just that gets manifest in the world where we don't live from a place of caring, of looking deeply. We live habitually, you know, pulled to the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant. We don't live from the deepest place within. And as a result, there's suffering. This is what we're waking up to. And sometimes those habits are just so strong. You know, the, 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 the comfort of delusion. I mean, it's not really comfortable when we begin to see it. But, you know, the, the, like the, the saying, ignorance is bliss, you know, that, that sometimes we just fall into such complacency. And so sometimes this pulling up from the depths within So the next is that of arousing or developing the unarisen, wholesome mind states. We find that this happens when we live an ethical life where our hearts are virtuous, where there is great care taken. You know, this naturally arouses a gladdening a joy in the mind. This can also, uh, arousing can happen in moments when we reflect on the virtuous actions of our life, moments of generosity, moments of deep caring, moments where we lived with wisdom. This helps to bring about energy we find that by practicing with the four foundations of mindfulness, when we are paying attention to our body, paying attention to the different feeling tone of experience, paying attention to this mind, the activities of mind, the nature of the mind, when we pay attention to the ah, causes and conditions for happiness, when we're turning up for our lives, this naturally brings forth the wholesome This happens naturally when the mind is protected from the unwholesome. As we practice, we find the seven factors of enlightenment naturally strengthen. We can also arouse or develop wholesome states by practicing the Brahma-viharas, the boundless qualities of mind, loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. 
when we consciously work with the cultivation of the ten paramis, the requisites for enlightenment, this is also a way that we arouse and develop these wholesome qualities of mind. Where, you know, doing something like generosity, bringing it into consciousness, this helps to strengthen this wholesome quality in the mind. When we remember patience in moments where there may have been anger, where we, this, this too helps to strengthen And then the last of the four great endeavors is to maintain already arisen wholesome mind states. And this is described as to keep firmly in mind favorable object of concentration that has arisen. And so this will vary according to what type of practice we are doing. You know, if we are doing uh, metta practice, it would be to keep having metta as the object. And we keep returning the mind to that object and keep staying steady with it. If we were uh, practicing anapanasati, we'd be using the breath and to keep uh, the mind very steady on this object of concentration. If we're practicing with an open awareness, it's, it's really practicing with an awareness of whatever is being known in this moment, but staying steady with that, unwavering, not letting the mind wander. And with this maintaining, it's like there's a great clarity as to what we're doing in practice. And just this unwavering aspect of being steady with it. So these are the four great endeavors that the Buddha spoke of. And what I like about them is, as I said in the beginning, that they're very practical ways. Because I think we can have some habits around the arousing of energy or ideas about energy that really work against us. You know, where we're trying to make this superhuman effort all the time and find that we can't. You know, I was practicing... Um, in Burma with my teacher, one of my teachers, Sayadaw Ujanaka. And I went there really with a strong sense of determination and a great zeal for practice and threw myself headlong into it and just this sense of wanting to practice come what may, uh, practicing very long hours and... um, and what I began to see that there was all that was happening, not all, I mean there was definitely lessons, but what was really happening was this accelerating rate of bodily decay where I was wearing myself into the ground and there wasn't an apparent strengthening of wisdom. And Actually, my roommate tells a story of me. You know, she'd been watching me and, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing. And then she said one morning, I woke up and I did as I did every morning right upon awakening. I would reach out of my mosquito net and reach for a water bottle. And she said, on this particular morning, I I was reaching for the water bottle. And when my hand hit the bottle, I just fell asleep (laughs) right there. And she just looked at me and she said, too much. (laughs) No, I I reached a point where it was just, I I, I became thin as could be. um, And... I, you know, so there I was sitting, just really grappling with right effort, right energy. And then Sayadaw Ujanaka one night was giving a Dharma talk, and he started talking about how um, at times we have the energy, you know, it's really there, and that other times we don't. 
And then he said, why? You know, why is this so? You know, I was like sitting on the edge of my seat. And then he says, because we are human. And I was like, oh, right. (laughs) I experienced it as, you know, it's just such a relief because I've been taking this, you know, huge energy, lack of energy, as being personal failing, you know, not being good enough, never going to be good enough. And, you know, it's just a part of being human. Um, and, you know, looking at it, I could see that there was, I had a lot of shoulds in my practice. What I should be able to do, how energy should always lead to more energy. And, you know, the sense of pushing and, you know, as we probably all know, that becomes exhausting. You know, it's like we try to do the practice like we would run a hundred-yard dash. And practice is a marathon. It's for life. And so to try to have that level of energy all the time isn't going to work. But we just need the effort or energy to meet experience as it is. And sometimes, you know, it's such a light touch that it's just to know what the mind is knowing right now as we sit here, hearing, sitting, breathing. Maybe it's just awareness. Whatever it is, you know, how much effort, energy. If we're waking up in the morning and we're really sleepy, it's probably going to take a little bit more to know the experience or we'll just be back asleep again. You know, it's like that's a time where you might have to rally deep to find the, the energy that's going to get you out of bed. You know, wh- how to do that, which... Really, the proximate cause for the arising of energy is spiritual urgency. You know, being in touch with how precious this opportunity is, this human life. And that, you know, could be gone in a flash. We don't know. But this moment, right now, we can meet. This moment, here now, is the opportunity. And so when we see that flicker, it's like meeting that moment. I used to do a lot of skiing in my youth. And somewhere, you know, with skiing, you're always facing changing conditions and going down the side of a mountain. And, you know, it's like one minute you could be on ice And if you dig in your edges, they'll just fly out. And the next moment, you might be in light powder, and you just need just a light touch to turn. Uh, Or you might hit slush, and you need a lot of weight. And, you know, practice is the same around effort or energy. If we use mindfulness, that really will inform around effort or energy, how much is needed, what the conditions are. So, you know, it's just being responsive. We can't practice habitually. It doesn't work. Know that we have to meet this moment as it is. There's a phrase that I think is also helpful around effort or energy, and it was given to us by Nike. (laughs) Um, I guess in their advertising, used the phrase, just do it. One day as I was practicing in Burma with Sayadaw Utejaniya, another of my teachers, there was a yogi in front of him who was just going on about, you know, how hard it was, you know, in daily life situations, you know, not having the effort or energy to be aware. And he had this little sign, and he plops it right on the desk, and it says, just do it. 
You know, and that's that sort of wisdom cutting through, you know, the mind of <laughs> just do it. Whatever. You know, just meet this moment. And we find with effort or energy that it, it comes about really naturally when our faith is strong. You know, when we are in touch with why we're doing what we're doing. And, you know, in, initially, um, you know, it's that sense of possibility. You, you, you might remember back to your first retreats and how much zeal there could have been. But it also gets strengthened when we have our own understanding. And, you know, just this confidence strengthens, energy stabilizes. You know, we reach the point, and my guess is we've all reached it, where we just know there is no choice. We have to do this practice. Why not do it wholeheartedly? Why not do it with all the faith and love in your heart? Why not do it from a place of caring deeply? You know, when we're in touch with the suffering of the world, this too brings about this effort, energy that we need to awaken, to break the trance of delusion. We're so fortunate. We have this opportunity. And it could change in a minute. Could change in a heartbeat. Can we find the energy, effort, just to meet this moment? Again, and again, and again. To stay steady when the challenges occur, when those deep habits reemerge. But to look to the abandoning, the relinquishing, steadying the mind. What else is there to do? energy becomes joyful. Letting the efforts of our practice be wholehearted, fully engaged, so that the work that we do here can be for the welfare and benefit of all beings everywhere. So let's just sit for a moment.
the four great efforts to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states, to abandon the already arisen, unwholesome states, to arouse the unarisen, wholesome states, and to maintain the already arisen, wholesome states. This is what we can turn our effort or energy towards. Closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.